you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll be honest with you, this passage is heartbreaking to me. I really did not want to preach it, but it's my job. So here we are. 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is a passage all about expectations. When I was a child, I had naive expectations about life. I was naively optimistic. To me, life was a relatively simple equation. If you do the right things, if you learn all that you can, if you're kind, if you do well in school, then you will succeed and you will be wildly happy and all doors will open to you and people will like you and want to be your friends and you'll be happy. To me, that's how life looked. It just seemed so simple. My mom was always the realist to me growing up. She would warn me about my naive optimism. She would caution me, Blake, just because you get straight A's doesn't mean Ford Motor Company is going to hand you the front door keys. You're not just going to get the greatest job out there for doing well in school. And even if you were to get a great job, it's still not going to be perfect. Because there is no perfect job, there's no perfect family, there's no perfect life. She was always watching out for these naively optimistic expectations that I had. But throughout my adolescence and my 20s, I just didn't want to listen to that message. So I just tuned it out for most of my life until I got into my 30s. And for whatever reason, I've talked to many of you who've experienced the same. The 30s is that time of life when your dreams of happiness and success die. It's just kind of, it's kind of how it works. And so all of my naively optimistic dreams of success and happiness crashed down around me because I did not have accurate expectations about life on this planet. Well, Paul did not want his young protege, Timothy, to be crushed by the painful realities of life. So in our passage this morning, Paul is going to frame Timothy's expectations. He wants Timothy to face life with eyes wide open, to see what life in this world really looks like. So Paul's going to confront us with the cold, hard realities of life on the planet earth. So let's jump right in. Let's look at life as it really is. Let's let our expectations be shaped by the word of God. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now let's pause there for a second. In the last days. For a lot of people, they're tempted to see the last days as like something prophetic. Of the far distant future, maybe the tribulation, something like that. Well, fortunately, last days is a phrase that's used frequently in the New Testament. It's actually a fairly technical term. It has a really clear definition. You can find it in a number of passages. I think the clearest is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So so the last days is a biblical phrase that refers to the age of humanity that began with the arrival of Jesus on earth and will continue until he returns. So in other words, the last days is today. You're living in them right now. The last days goes from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. So everything we're about to read in this passage is about life now. We are living in the difficult times already. So let's pick it up in verse 2. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress. For their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Paul talks about these men, but when he's talking about men, he's not talking about males. He's talking about mankind in general. He's talking about the human race. Now, he's not saying that every individual human being is as bad as everything in this list. All of these horrid adjectives don't describe every single individual on earth, but they do describe the human race. Paul is showing us the the depth of evil that infects all of humanity. This is how evil the human race is. But before we unpack that list, let's clear up a few things that might have confused you as we read through this passage. The first is where Paul in verse 5 says, avoid such men as these. But how does that fit with the Great Commission? We're supposed to go out and make disciples. We're supposed to preach the gospel to evil men. So how does that fit in? Well, verse 5 is not to all of us. It's particular advice Paul is giving to Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Timothy was to keep these evil people out of leadership roles in the church. That's what that's about. We're still to go out. We're to pursue all of the people this is talking about with the good news of the gospel. Second thing to clear up, verse 6, Paul talks about false teachers entering into households and captivating weak women. What is going on there? Well, Paul is not talking about women being weak or gullible. He's talking about false teachers who in his day sought out uneducated people to lead them into cults or heresies. And in Paul's day, women were not allowed to be educated. That was just part of Roman society. And so women were particularly vulnerable to cults and heresies. In our day, it's different. Women are as equally educated as men. So this idea in our day, it's about any of these false teachers seeking out any uneducated person, whether male or female, any person who is naive and is led astray into a cult or a false teaching. Paul's saying, watch out for people like that. If you want an example, just turn on almost any televangelist and you will see that's what's going on. Someone leading people astray to make money off them. That's the idea there. Third thing that might confuse you is these two men, Janus and Jambres. They're not found in the Old Testament, but they are found in ancient Jewish literature. That's the name of the two Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. 
So Moses went to Egypt and proclaimed that there is one true God. Yahweh is his name. And Moses dropped his staff on the ground and it turned into a snake. And then two of Pharaoh's magicians came out, Janus and Jambres. And they dropped their staffs. And whether it was through trickery or through demonic magic, their staffs also turned into snakes. They were trying to show that Yahweh is not God. Well, if you know the story, they fail in the end. Because Moses' miracles just keep ratcheting up. Crazier, crazier, crazier. They can't keep up. And they're finally humiliated. And Paul's point is that's what will ultimately happen to all false teachers. So with those confusing lines cleared up, let's step back and, and learn the lesson that God has for us in this passage. God is trying to shape our view of reality. He's trying to help us have accurate expectations about life in this world. And so reality number one for us is that this world is desperately evil. This world is evil. If you've been paying attention in scripture, you know it's been evil all the way since Genesis 3. All the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat a forbidden apple. And what do their kids do in the next chapter? Cain murders Abel because humans are quick learners. We descend immediately into violence. The violence so enraptures all of humanity that by chapter 6, God has no choice but to wipe us out. And so he sends a flood to bring an end to violence on the earth. He saves Noah and Noah's family, but Noah's family quickly descends back into sin. And so you look at the story of the human race, and it is tragedy. It is incredibly dark. So the world has been evil from all the way back in Genesis 3, and it will be evil until Jesus returns. It will be desperately evil. Why? Because humans are bent towards sin. The desire of our hearts by nature is sin. And particularly that sin flows out of the very first description Paul uses in verse 2. For men or humanity, people will be lovers of self. That's the dominant description. All the rest of the evil in this list flows out of that one. We are selfish. By nature, we are selfish. We love ourselves instead of God or other people. And because we are selfish, the result is that humans are greedy and we are prideful and we are demeaning towards one another and we're rebellious towards our parents and we fight with one another and we gossip about each other and we're immoral and we're brutal to each other. We're sarcastic. We're liars who betray one another. We pretend to be religious while rejecting God at the same time. That is the normal human condition. That is the extent of evil that infects the human race. Theologians have a word for that, depravity. Depravity means that humanity is completely broken by sin. The human being is, is completely and profoundly broken in every faculty by the fall of sin. So our minds are broken and our hearts are broken and our bodies are broken and our emotions are broken and our relationships are broken and our beliefs are broken. It's all broken by sin. We sin because the human heart is bent towards sin. That's why when you look at the history of the human race, you will find that evil always persists no matter what laws are passed and no matter who's elected into office. 
Because there's no legislation, there's no social change that can do anything about the evil in this list. I'll illustrate that. I have a little confession for you guys. I really didn't care very much about the gay marriage debate. You know why? Because ultimately, whether or not America as a country chooses to legislate for or against gay marriage, it's not going to do anything about this. Gay marriage is just a symptom. This is the problem. That the human heart is bent towards sin. It's bent towards evil. And there is no legislation that can fix that. There's no political candidate that can fix any of that. The only hope for fixing this is the good news we call the gospel. The gospel in Greek literally means good news. It's the good news that Jesus came to die for our sins and rise from the dead to give us life. And by life we mean new life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The moment that you trusted in Jesus as your savior, you died. The the old you that was a slave of sin, that that lived in verses 1 through 9, that person died on that day and the Holy Spirit came into your life and regenerated you, made you a new creature so that now you don't have to give in into this evil anymore. You're no longer a slave of this sin in chapter 3 anymore. You are a new creature because of the gospel. That's the only thing that can fix the evil of chapter 3. You have to die and be born again. A new person, a new creation set free from slavery to sin and Satan. And so if you've trusted in Jesus, I want you to see the radical change that has happened in your life. Here is you before you trusted in Jesus. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which means literally you could not help but sin. That was your only option available to you. You were owned by sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Before you trusted in Jesus, you were a slave of sin owned by Satan, but all that changed. The moment you trusted in Jesus, this became you. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. You went from child of wrath to child of God who is loved. You went from slave of sin who cannot help but do all the bad stuff in chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 to a child of God who can now be like God. You can love other people sacrificially like Jesus loves you. Everything changed about you the moment you trusted in Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. And it is the only thing that can deliver the human race from the evil of chapter 3. So, I just want to ask you, has there been some moment in your life when you became persuaded that the gospel is true? Has there been some moment where you became convicted that Jesus really did live? 
that he really did die for you in your place and then he rose from the dead to give you eternal life as a free gift. Have you ever believed that? If not, if there's something holding you back, if gosh, that just seems too good to be true or Jesus just seems too mystical to believe, if there's something holding you back, I beg you, please come talk to me. Write me a letter, write me an email, come visit me, call me on the phone, talk to someone here because there is no hope for you until or unless you trust in Jesus. Now for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, what do we do with the cold, hard, dark realities of these verses? Well, I think there's two practical applications for us. Number one, don't be surprised by evil. When you see evil in this world, don't be surprised at it. So when the news came out about what Donald Trump said on a bus back in 2005, it sickens me, but it doesn't surprise me. Of course he said that. Because that's how this world works. That is this world. This world is a desperately evil place. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That shouldn't shock us. Of course he said it. Both candidates, all the candidates are desperately evil. They're owned by sin and by Satan. So when they do evil things, it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't surprise us. Now that doesn't mean that we dismiss or ignore the evil, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. As Max Lucado put it, lower your expectations of earth. This isn't heaven, so don't expect it to be. It's just a good thing to recognize. America is not heaven. Let's lower our expectations of what we're going to find here. So that's the first thing. Don't be surprised by evil. Second practical application. Pray for the salvation of the lost. I want to read you the saddest verse in this whole chapter. Look at verse 13. But evil men, that is evil people, and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Do you notice the tragedy at the end? Deceiving and being deceived. Every perpetrator of evil is also a victim of evil. They deceive others because they themselves are deceived. Do you remember what Jesus prayed as he was being crucified for the men who were crucifying him? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The lost people of this world know not what they do. They do not see how evil they are. They do not recognize that they are held captive by Satan. They can't see any of that. Donald Trump knows not what he does. Hillary Clinton knows not what she does. The evil people of this world are held captive by sin and by Satan. And that should break our hearts. When we think about these people, we should weep for them. And we should pray for them. Pray that God would forgive them. Pray that God would grab hold of them and open their eyes to see the glory and truth of the gospel. I need to remember that. That's hard for me. So when the news broke this week about what Donald Trump said on that Bus, I was reading it while my six-year-old daughter sat across from me. And so my first reaction to the news was to think about how incredibly badly I wanted to punch him in the face. And I don't say that as a joke. Because no person should ever 
say what he said about women or do what he did to women, ever. So for me, I just feel rage. But my wife is more godly than me. When she heard the news, she said, Blake, we need to pray. We need to pray for Trump and we need to pray for Clinton because they know not what they do. They're held captive by sin and by Satan. They cannot see the light. And so let us pray for them that God would set them free from the tragedy of verse 13. They're caught up in this spiral of deception, deceiving others, being deceived themselves, proceeding from bad to worse. And there is no hope for any of them apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's begin to pray. Let's turn our anger into prayer. Let's turn our rage into prayer. Let's weep for those who don't know Jesus. When you see evil things in this world, don't be surprised and don't let it make you angry. Instead, let it make you weep. For the lost who know not what they do. Let it turn your heart to prayer. That God would grab hold of them and deliver them from the tragedy of verse 13. So the first reality that we need to face is that this world is desperately evil. Will be until Jesus returns. Second reality that we need to let shape our expectations is the promise. That Christians will be persecuted. This world is evil, and so those who choose to follow Christ will suffer for it. Look at verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Read that verse again. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a blanket promise. I'm always a little surprised by Christians who are surprised that persecution's coming. God told us it would. There's no exceptions here. It's a simple blanket promise. If you choose to not only believe in Jesus, but follow Jesus, live like Jesus publicly in this world, you will be persecuted. Jesus made the same promise. None of this should surprise us. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's an absolute blanket promise. If you choose to follow Christ publicly, to live like Christ publicly, there will be a cost to pay. You will be persecuted by this world. Now, the amount of persecution will vary from place to place and time to time. So there are some of us here who are paying very little cost to follow Jesus publicly. And for now, I'm included in that. I don't pay a big price publicly for following Jesus here in this town of College Station, at least not yet. But there are some of you out here in the audience today who are paying a big price. I know of professors who are part of our church who risk losing tenure or not getting tenure if they publicly stand for Jesus. It could cost them their job, their career. I know of some of you whose families will not speak to you anymore because you accepted Jesus. There's some of us who are paying a very real price for following Jesus. And there's some of us who are going to pay a very real price very soon. At the elder board meeting this week, we had the privilege of praying 
for a few of our missionaries from Grace who are going overseas to Muslim countries. And they're not going for a year or two. They're going long-term into these hostile nations. They're going to sacrifice creature comforts and friendships, and they may be called upon to sacrifice much more than that. Because ISIS doesn't make idle threats. To be faithful to Jesus publicly in these countries, they are risking their lives. There really may come a day, probably will come a day, when Grace Bible Church will lose a missionary to persecution. Because that's the world we live in. So for many believers, persecution is a very real thing. And when persecution comes, when it comes into your life, what should you do? Well, follow the advice that Paul gives in verses 10 and 11. Follow those who've gone before you. Follow those who have suffered well. Okay, so that's Paul, clearly. That would be Peter, that'd be John, that'd be any of the apostles, but they lived a long time ago. It's hard to connect with their lives. So for me, I like to connect with more of these modern missionaries who gave their lives or suffered greatly in the cause of Christ. And so I've given you six. I encourage you just write one name down and go on to Amazon this week and buy the biography about that person. So Adoniram Judson, Amy Carmichael, Hudson Taylor, Corey Tin Boom, Brother Yoon, Jim Elliott. These are all men and women who not only chose to believe in Jesus, but chose to follow Jesus even when it cost them greatly. They were imprisoned, they were tortured, some of them were killed for their faith. So when you face suffering, when you face persecution, I think what you will find is that missionary biographies are one of the best tools you have to give you hope and strength when persecution comes. Because you read their stories and it inspires you. You read their stories and it reminds you, you can make it through this pain, through this suffering. They made it and they're no different than you. And so get one of these biographies of one of these men or women who followed the Lord and suffered well. Get that biography, read it, and it will inspire you. And motivate you to endure when persecution comes. Now, I know for a lot of us, frankly, it's just hard to imagine persecution coming here to College Station. It's hard to imagine that we could lose our freedom or our lives for following Jesus in this place. But we need to recognize that is happening today all over the world. Maybe not here in College Station, but in many other nations, our brothers and sisters in Christ today are suffering, are being tortured, are being imprisoned, and are being executed because they were willing to stand for Jesus. Let me introduce you to some of the stories of the persecuted church. The video I'm about to show you is from Open Doors. It's a ministry that tracks persecution of Christians around the world so that we can pray accurately for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. Christian persecution is increasing. The scale and dynamics of Christian persecution has changed and grown drastically. Millions of Christians are persecuted for their faith worldwide, in more countries and in more ways than ever before. We've seen an unprecedented rise in persecution, especially in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa. Based on the raw data and recent global events, it will likely get worse. In 2016, Iraq has moved to number two on the list. Iraq has seen tens of thousands of Christians forced to flee their homes because of the terror of ISIS. 
Many have been displaced for over a year now, burdened with the struggle of daily living as they face an uncertain future. Eritrea, ranked number three, has had one of the most dramatic jumps in rank. Christians suffer intense persecution in all spheres of life. Believers face violence and imprisonment in horrific conditions, some being locked inside metal shipping containers. Uzbekistan, ranked at number 15, has one of the harshest dictatorships in Central Asia. Because of the constant pressure and surveillance, it is almost impossible for Christians to display or share their faith. We believe there is only one body of Christ, and when one part suffers, every part suffers. We hope you feel called to learn more and pray for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a daily reality. Here's a map from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs that also tracks persecution of Christians around the world. Every country in red, which is the majority of countries and population centers on earth, is a country where Christians face arrest, imprisonment, torture, or execution for publicly following Jesus Christ. So what I want you to notice from this map is that according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is the norm. This is what we should expect, red, persecution, imprisonment, torture, death for Jesus Christ. America is the exception to the rule, and I don't expect it to last much longer. Because the whole fact that we can publicly follow Jesus and not pay a price, that is not what God told us to expect in this life. He told us to expect we're going to lose our jobs, we're going to lose our houses, we're going to lose our freedom, and that's okay. You know why? Because God told us that's the price we pay for following Jesus Christ. He told us to expect it, not to respond in anger, but to expect it and say, yes, Jesus is worth this pain. So that persecution will come until it does. The least that we can do is pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering today. We can be praying for the man or the woman who is locked in that metal shipping crate because they weren't willing to walk away from Jesus. And so I'm going to end the sermon early today so that we can together spend some time praying for the persecuted church. I want us to follow the instructions that are laid out for us in Hebrews chapter 13. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. There is only one church, of which Grace Bible Church is a very tiny part, And within our one church, many of our brothers and sisters are in pain today because of their allegiance to Jesus. So we're going to pray for Christians who are being persecuted. We're going to pray for their peace. We're going to pray for their strength. And we're going to pray for their faithfulness. That God would help them to be faithful to the end, to be lights and witnesses for Jesus Christ. And we're going to pray for their captors, for those who are persecuting them. That through the witness of these believers, they too would come to know Jesus. Here's one more video from Open Doors to help prepare your hearts so that you can pray for the persecuted church. I'm going to ask you to spend the next few minutes in prayer. 
If you're comfortable doing this, I'd invite you to gather together with one or two people next to you and pray together. If you'd prefer to pray silently alone, you're welcome to do that too. I want you to pray for two things, and and I want to be very particular here, very specific. I want you to pray for the salvation of the lost. Not that God would destroy them or punish them, but that God would save them from the evil of chapter 3. And second, I want you to pray for the faithfulness, not the safety of the church. God never promised us safety, but he did ask us for faithfulness. So pray that God would help us to be faithful. Pray that God would help our brethren overseas to be faithful even when they suffer. Let's pray with the persecuted church. I'm going to give you a few minutes, gather together, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who sees all things. You see the twenty or 30,000 Christians who are trapped in forced labor camps in North Korea this morning. You see the Christian hostages who are held by ISIS in caves throughout the Middle East. You see all of your people who are suffering in Africa. You see, Lord, all of your people who are living in camps, living fearful and dangerous lives in Iraq. Lord, you are a God who sees. We praise you for that. We thank you that you are with your people all around the world. Even if they are alone, they are not truly alone because you are in them and with them. And we pray that your strength would overwhelm them this morning. We pray that your peace would flood over them, that they would sense your love. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them so that they can remain faithful to Jesus no matter what comes in the future. We pray for their captors, Lord, for their persecutors, Lord. We pray that you would open their eyes, that you would release them from the tragedy of verse 13 so that they might see and believe truth and be saved. We praise you that you are a God who can do that. We pray that your church would thrive in the blood of its martyrs. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grow this church through love and through righteousness. Help us to be faithful to Jesus, no matter what we must suffer. Now I invite you to stand as we respond together in worship.